0: Let's go ahead and step into our scripture for this morning. It's in Second Peter chapter 1, Second Peter chapter 1 verse 12, and we're going to continue through 2 verse 9. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction." And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Oops, I read too much. (laughs) Sorry, guys, I get a little excited. Um, With that, that's the word of the Lord. (laughs) Let's welcome, Albert.
1: I guess I'll preach and teach through where she read. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And as we gather here this morning, Lord, in worship and praise of you and to learn more about you, we ask God for soft hearts, open minds to receive from you this morning what you want to impart to us in Jesus name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, we started our second Peter series, starting looking at verses 12 through 15 first because in them Peter tells us why he wrote this letter. And in them are the central reasons to this letter. So going back a couple weekends ago, I also had the privilege of going on a retreat with Eugene Peterson. He's the guy that wrote the message, and I was so blessed to be with him and his wife, and so I wanted to read his interpretation of the scriptures from verses 12 through 15 in Second Peter chapter 1. Because the stakes are so high, even though you're up to date on all this truth and practice it inside and out, I'm not going to let up for a minute in calling you to attention before it. This is the post to which I've been assigned, keeping you alert with frequent reminders, and I'm sticking to it as long as I live. I know that I'm to die soon. The Master has made that quite clear to me. And so I am especially eager that you have all this down in black and white so that after I die, you'll have it for ready reference. Peter wrote this letter under the direction of the Holy Spirit, knowing that our spiritual lives depend on our faith in Jesus. And the basics of the Christian faith are really simple. Just like an artist or a scholar or an athlete or anyone who does something really well, there are basics associated with their skill set. So what are the basics of the Christian life? We covered this briefly last week in verses 5 through 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Peter knew he was going to die soon. And when you're in a place when death is imminent in your life, what do you want to leave for your loved ones? What would be your parting words for your loved ones? you'd want to remind them what is most important to you, and you'd also want to remind them of what is going to be of most benefit to them. And here's what Peter does, verses 12 through 15 again. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Those qualities are in verses 5 through 7. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. This reminder is key to why Peter wrote this letter, and the following verses. Give us the confidence and the assurance we have in Jesus until we get to chapter 2 verse 1 where Peter warns those who follow Jesus that there will be false teachers amongst us. And so let's look at that really briefly. Chapter 2 verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. We'll get into chapter 2 a little later this morning. Let's first take a look at the latter verses of chapter 1 and why we can be confident in our faith in Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now you notice there that Peter uses we. It's plural. It's more than one eyewitness. Verse 17. For when we received Honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We know how much validity, credibility there is in eyewitness accounts, especially those that corroborate with one another. We know that in the court of law that hearsay is not accepted, And so here we have Peter, John, James, who are eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses to what? What event are they referring to? These guys are referring to the Transfiguration, found in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. If you want to turn there. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Why did they keep silent back then? But here in Peter's writing, it's not kept silent any longer. Why is that? Back then... They didn't know what to make of the transfiguration. They didn't know what was going on there. But after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, what happened to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration made so much more sense to them. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration was this foretaste of things to come when Jesus returns, the demonstration of Jesus Christ's glory, the manifestation of the Old Testament saints in fellowship with the present-day followers of Jesus. At the transfiguration, Peter, John, and James were given this sneak peek of things to come. And Peter's eyewitness account is shared with us regarding the things he saw and he heard firsthand. Not just the transfiguration, but he was also there at the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus as mentioned in Acts. Continuing on in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Prophetic words, prophecies of Scripture about Jesus found in the Holy Scriptures. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, through his name how can we have this confidence well, firstly we can have confidence in the eyewitness accounts regarding jesus secondly we can have confidence in the prophecies of scripture which have all been fulfilled unless they just haven't come to fruition yet the old testament prophecies are jesus for everyone to witness and they have all been fulfilled in regards to jesus they support what peter has seen what peter has heard what Peter has written for us, and even though Peter was right there to warn those of his generation who were susceptible to false teachers and to false teachings, how much more susceptible are we so many generations removed from him? Yet we were gifted with the Word of God, with Peter reminding us that he will make every effort so that after his death, 2,000 years later, we may be able at any time to recall these things. How many people do you know have left the faith that they once had in Jesus? I have quite a few friends that this has happened to. What happened? What happened? You and I still have this faith in Jesus, and we're no more special than they are. So, what happened? I think a huge part has to do with the idea that the Bible is insufficient. That these prophetic words that we find in the scriptures are insufficient. The false teachings that are out there are more appealing. They're more attractive. And so they follow those things because this is an antiquated book. Now one of the responsibilities of a pastor is to ensure that those in the church are grounded in the word of God. That they're secure in what Jesus did for us. That the scriptures guide and lead our lives. It's not something from within ourselves. Look at verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not all about you and me and what we think and how we interpret prophetic Scripture. Prophetic Scripture is prophetic. It speaks for itself. Verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So no one can alter prophecy because the prophecy was produced from God, which is why the prophetic words from thousands of years ago in Scripture still have significance today. They still ring true today. There are other religions in which their holy books have been proven false by their own prophetic words. A lot of them. Find that within Judaism or Christianity. Find that. You can't find a false prophetic word in our scriptures. There are some that haven't happened yet, but that does not mean that they're wrong. You can't say that for other religions, though. They've come and gone, or their archaeology is off, or their history is off. There are these things that are just off. And their holy books show that their prophecies are wrong, they're false. So when we read the Bible, we're not reading some prophet's work who is writing from their own respective will. We're hearing from the living God by the Holy Spirit. And yes, the author's personalities are in their writings. Their culture has influenced their writings. They have all these different things that are influencing the flavor of their writings. But their biblical writings were carried by the Holy Spirit. Now... To believe that the scriptures were ultimately produced by God takes some faith. But we couple that faith with reason. What faith do we need to exercise? The faith that we have to believe there's a God who speaks to us through his word. There's some faith involved there. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So we need faith in God, his word. We need that to be sanctified. John chapter 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We need this faith in God, in his words, to spiritually grow. 1 Peter chapter 2, 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. The psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The authority of the word of God, of the Bible, is derived by God. Not because it was produced by people, not because it was changed by culture, but because people spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We tend to focus on people. We tend to focus on prophets when our focus is to be on God. God spoke through a donkey. The donkey later had a very successful career in the Shrek franchise. But but he spoke through a donkey. So why do we give so much credit to those whom God uses? Are we giving credit to a donkey? That's essentially what the prophets and people are. We're just a bunch of donkeys. It's God. It's God whom we are to give credit to, to give praise to. Any one of us is replaceable by a donkey. (laughs) It's only by his grace are we used by him. And you and I to examine what we hear with the scriptures, just like the Bereans did, right? Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the words with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Don't just accept what people say. Peter referred to the prophets who have spoken from God in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, he refers to false prophets. Chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. We recently finished studying the book of Nehemiah. We saw how Nehemiah was fighting those people outside of the walls, and that was really challenging. Then we found out that fighting the people in the walls was a greater challenge and Paul realizes the same danger in Acts chapter 20 29 through 31 Paul addressed the Ephesian church that he was departing them and he speaks of this and Luke writes this I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them therefore be alert Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Jude knew this as well. Verse 4 in Jude, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God with sensuality and deny our only master and our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, false prophets don't announce their arrival. They don't have people gather around and then share with them, hey, come here, I, I have a heresy to share with you. <laughs> they don't do things like this. False teachers aren't transparent. They hide things of themselves that will risk their false teaching to be discovered. Actually, false teachers usually have a lot of charisma. Usually, they have a lot of skill. They are good in what they say. They're really knowledgeable. They usually come across as people with leadership as their gift. They're really good at leading people. They're really good at communicating well. They know enough of the Bible to be really dangerous. And they can leave people with this sense that they need to be considered for church leadership because they're so gifted and they're so charismatic. They have all these things about them. Now, we don't have to always go around worried that we have a false prophet among us. You don't have to be worried about that. Nor do we go around thinking that everything is just fine without a care in the world, in our church, that there's no way that there's a false teacher amongst us. So we don't need to be paranoid and we don't need to be naive. But we want to be alert and mindful and aware that there's a possibility. And Peter gives us some pointers as what we need to look for. Continuing on here in verse 1, who will secretly they're not out in the open bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So they work in secret. They work Behind closed doors, they secretly do things and what they do isn't completely transparent. So what we try to do here at Regen is we try to make things transparent, whether it's our home groups or whatever it is that we have some accountability, that things are checked in and people can kind of look into things. Because ultimately what happens is destruction. When those things are done in secret, when those things are done in private, it might seem positive, it might seem good, it might seem constructive, but the end is destructive. Verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. Sensuality is a huge part of false teachers, false prophets. Have you noticed this about cults, whether you're talking about Branch Davidian or whatever, like sleep with me, come with me, or there's some sort of different thing there. This is a dead giveaway with false teachers, false prophets. They can't help it. You look at their lives And sensuality is not far from them. Whether it's a porn addiction or there's adultery in the past or whatever it may be. Sensuality meaning that there's this unbridled lust. That there's this shamelessness about them. Verses 7 and 18 speak of their sensual conduct and their sensual passions. Continue on in verse 3. And in their greed. They're also greedy. They will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They'll take advantage of people. They'll exploit people with their false words. They're really good with stories, with their own stories. And then you start questioning about their stories. They're really good at spinning them to look a certain way so that they come out looking like someone you should listen to or someone that's favorable. Or that there's some new spiritual discovery that they've discovered. But it's false. It is biblically false. Saying that a sin is not a sin. When it is. You need to be careful. You need to be aware of these people. And to steer clear of them. Peter gives us some pointers on how they work. And he also points out their influence. Look at verse 2 again. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. They will dilute the testimony of Jesus. They will cheapen the faith in Jesus Christ and the grace of God. Heretics have followers because they are skilled at gathering them and they always center around some sensuality, some lust, some thing that says it's okay to do what people are doing. They are gifted at uncovering something within people's sinful hearts that need permission to come out when ultimately it leads to destruction. And the strategy is brilliant. Because you won't hear anything offensive in what they teach. They're not going to offend you. Because you can't win favor that way. They give permission to live the way that you want to live. They give permission to feed your appetites, to be self-indulgent, to open up your minds to the things of the world and to close your mind to the things of God, confusing your mind towards God, filling it with compromise and at the end, destruction. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Peter gives us several examples of this destruction in verses 4 through 9. Beginning with the angels falling in verse 4. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. See, angels are subject to to judgment as a Satan, and you can read all about this in Revelation chapter 20. So, if the angels, if angelic beings aren't even exempt from the judgment of God regarding sin, nobody is. Nobody is. Sin can't exist in the presence of God's holiness. Now, here's example number two, Noah and the flood. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The story of Noah can be found in Genesis, starting in Genesis 5. And although we are all subject to judgment, including angels, we're not without hope. God is just and he is merciful and gracious. He looks to save, to spare, to preserve, and he proved that in the flood By providing for Noah. He proves that to us today in providing to us Jesus. Everyone is subject to judgment. But God provides a way of rescue, of deliverance, of salvation. The idea of judgment is one of the difficulties people have with Christianity. It's a really tough pill to swallow. People find this really offensive, especially here in the Bay Area. Yet we live in a world of judgment, don't we? Our world is full of judgment, and we're grateful for it. Aren't we? This is how life works. One of my best friends, he's a medical director of a network of hospitals, and he just recently had to take his emergency boards. Every 10 years, he has to take these boards. Right? So every year he goes, he takes this exam, and if he doesn't pass, it doesn't mean that he's no longer a physician. It means that he can't work at an emergency department that requires board certification, which means most places. (laughs) Except maybe some small rural place out in the sticks or something, maybe they don't require board certification, but that's probably not where you want to get hurt. Right? And so it doesn't mean that any emergency department won't hire him. But he was judged by this board on whether he knows enough to get the board certification. And every one of us who has gone into emergency department are grateful and thankful that they check those people that they're current on their medical training. Aren't we? I mean, geez, you're a surgeon and you're operating on my eye. I want you to be current. I want you to know your stuff. Or if you're an orthopedic surgeon, you're operating on my joints or something. I want to walk again. I want you to know your stuff. We judge all the time. And we're really, really grateful for it. And all of us have this in our studies. Every one of us who has an education, we've gone through this. You have had to pass your exams in order to get to where you're at. You're judged all the time. In our jobs, it's not just medicine. There are all different types of things that require exams. Even your hobbies. Even your hobbies. Not even a job, not even education. Your hobbies. Diving. you got to go get certified for scuba diving. Whatever it may be. Running marathons to run the Boston. you got to go through all these qualifiers in order to get there. You are judged all the time. You're judged pass or fail all the time. But then when it comes to this matter, no. No, we don't like judgment. When it comes to God and righteousness, no, don't judge me. You've been judged your whole life. Give me a break. And so here, we think we can judge God. Silly. It's silly. How can we judge God on his rules? You go to the medical board and you're like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't think that. I don't think CPR is the way. No, no, no. You don't do that. He rules the world that he created. How can we judge him? How arrogant can we be? Third example, verses 6 through 8. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Here's the bottom line. Sin. Unrighteousness leads to destruction that's the bottom line and no matter how righteous we are our righteousness does not pass on to somebody else they carry their own and so we all live among unrighteousness day after day but here's the question are we tormented over the lawless deeds that we see in others does it even bother us Or do we not even view sin as sin anymore? It doesn't bother us. We've become so accustomed to the ways of the world that that some of us may not even be bothered by what's going on. That we've lost our discernment between righteous and unrighteousness. Confusing what is ungodly and wicked with what is godly and righteous. God help us with discernment. Because so much cloudiness has gone on. So much... Confusion has gone on between what is righteous and what is unrighteous. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, did you notice this phrase here, to keep the unrighteous under punishment? The judgment isn't simply at the end of one's life. The unrighteous experience the punishment now. They experience the absence of God now. Just as the followers of Jesus experience the presence of God now. Let's just read the rest of the sentence there in the first part of verse 10. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Judgment is real whether we like it or not, it is happening in our world from the beginning of time, it has happened. It is unavoidable in our world today and it is unavoidable in the everlasting world to come. Holy God judges unrighteousness and while we do live among it, God preserves, he keeps, he protects those who by faith put their trust in Jesus until his return. And while we have the word of God to guide us, today we find the church fighting amongst itself. We're so divided on morality issues, on what is righteous and what is unrighteous. Living like the world, thinking as if this is our permanent home. And that righteousness will be found here and now, and it won't be. This is not the place where we find righteousness. This is not our permanent home. Let me close with 2 Peter 3, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's not here. Let's pray. Father, Father, Thank you for using your servant, Peter, in reminding us, in helping us to recall what we are to be alert for and aware of. Pray, God, that you would give us discerning minds, spirits, and hearts to the things that can mislead us, whether they be false teachers or false teachings, false prophets or false prophecies. May you give us that discernment, Lord, to know your voice, to recognize you and to follow you. May you give us the courage, God, to uphold your righteousness, regardless of where culture guides us, regardless of how negatively we are looked upon. We want to stand for you. We want to stand for truth. In Jesus' name, amen.